Hello, and welcome to Soul Curious, a podcast from the Franklin Institute. We're your hosts. I'm the Bull Bay. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. <laughs> Just kidding, I'm Kirsten. And I'm the Bull Bay. And this season is all about mental health, the science behind it, the factors that impact it, and much, much more. Yeah, and in this episode, we're exploring how things in our body, like hormones and genetics, can affect our mental health and disposition. We're first going to talk to Dr. Randy Hutter Epstein, a medical writer who quite literally wrote the book on the history of how hormones were discovered by the scientific community. Yeah, and then we're going to chat with Dr. Michael Gandahl about his lab's research into how genetics can help us better understand mental health disorders. But before we get into all that, Kirsten, what do you know about hormones and genetics? Jesus Christ. Um, (laughs) I know hormones are... uh, Okay, when I think of hormones, I think of them affecting your brain. And people love to be like, oh, that girl is being really moody because she's hormonal. But then also I know hormones are just like something that everybody has, right? Yeah, I feel like the entire time you were describing it, it sounded like you were describing teenagers. So (laughs) that that sort of sounded like to me. Okay, well then I guess let's chat with someone who actually understands hormones better than we do. Dr. Randy Hutter Epstein, welcome to the show. Introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Hi, I'm an MD and I write about medicine and I also teach medical writing to undergrads at Yale College and to graduate students at Columbia Journalism School and I'm the writer in residence at Yale School of Medicine. And I'd say that my writing really looks at the intersections of science and society. So how things going on in society and culture influence what doctors do, what scientists do. And then vice versa, what their research, how their research influences the way we think about health and disease. Yeah, that sounds like a study of a relationship, hopefully a good one. Sometimes yes, sometimes not. But isn't that what all relationships kind of are? Mm. We won't go there. Yeah, right. That was that was last season. <laughs> You're so right. So you wrote a book called Aroused, The History of Hormones and How They Control Just About Everything. Can you explain what that title means. Sure. I'm going to go back in time a bit. In 1905, when two British scientists discovered the way that hormones work, we didn't have a name. They just discovered these chemicals in the body that aroused the pituitary. They aroused the adrenal glands. They did all these arousing things in the body, these internal chemicals they knew that they were onto something big and they needed a name for it. So this was 1905 and they did actually what doctors like to do. They like highfalutin names. So they went to two of their friends who were Cambridge University professors in classics and said, what's a Greek word that means to arouse? And again, we're talking arousing the pituitary, the pancreas, all those really exciting things that we all think about when we think about arousal. And their Cambridge University friends said, how about something along the lines of hormoa, which is to arouse in Greek? So they gave a talk at the Royal Society, the two British scientists, They explained this new theory of how the body works, and they sort of said almost as a side, hormones, as we shall call them, 
And that's how we got the name hormone. Um, I'd like to say that they were at a meeting and all the doctors were like, yes, love this idea. Now we have a name. But, you know, a lot of times people don't agree and they want to get their thing in. So one of the doctors at the meeting said, eh, not a good name. How about autocoid, which means like internal cure or internal drug. And that's kind of cool. We could see that. That's 1905. More than a hundred years later, when I'm finishing my book and I needed a title, I turned to a friend of mine, just the way these hormone guys did. They turned to their <laughs> smart friends. And I turned to my smart friend, Abby Ellen, who is a prolific writer and wrote this book called Duped. But her real claim to fame is she's great at names. She named a Haagen-Dazs ice cream flavor. She named Carmel Sutra. No. If you can name a Carmel Sutra, you can come up with a name for my book. You can okay. do anything. So I, I emailed Abby and I'm like, I need a name. I can't call it hormone. So she said, well, what does hormone mean? And I said, well, the word comes from the word arouse. And she said, well, that's your title. And then I came up with this title and everyone loved it. Some people thought it was misleading, but I don't think I'm misleading people. I'm, you know, it's the way you perceive the word. I mean, you're aroused when you get out of bed in the morning if you're arousing to wake up. Could you give us the exact science definition of what is a hormone? Break it down just in layman terms, all that good stuff. Hormones, I like to think of it as your internal Wi-Fi. And what makes hormones so exciting is they are teeny tiny bits like nano droplets of chemicals that are released from a gland, let's say the pituitary gland, which is in your brain or your testes or your ovaries, they're droplets of chemicals that reach specific targets. So nowadays, because we have Wi-Fi and emails, it's like no big deal. But think back when we used to think that everything in the body traveled along nerves, like, you know, like you're working in a factory and you just hand it to the next person, these widgets, the concept that a little chemical could come out of your brain and then reach your testes and not anywhere else, like that was remarkable. So I, that's why I think of it as like your internal Wi-Fi. And honestly, I don't really understand Wi-Fi and I don't understand email or technology. But I do know that when I send an email, if I write it to a friend, that email is going to like float through cyberspace and I hope only goes to that friend. And so that's what we think of hormones as chemicals. Doctors like to say travel a distance. And when they say distance, they mean like head to testes, head to ovary. That's what makes hormones so remarkable. Your book explores all the bizarre turns that were taken while researching hormones. What are your, your favorite stories from the book? Gosh, I have a lot of favorite stories. I love the story of growth hormone in a sense because it talks about the hubris of doctors and what desperate parents would do. And then I, I also write about oxytocin, which, you know, is the love hormone and like where we've sort of exaggerated those claims. But I think my favorite, favorite story is goes back to the 1920s when men were getting vasectomies for their mental health. I love that, how this is starting already. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, and I just want to repeat that right now, we do not think that men should be getting vasectomies to boost their egos and their mental health and their urine output. Yes, men in the 1920s thought their urine flow was stronger and longer. And I didn't know that was a thing that men cared about 
And their libido, obviously, that has to do with it, went up. So right now, we think vasectomies are for people that do not want to worry about impregnating someone else. We don't think of them as mental health boosters. But the story in 1920, I think, says a lot about what drives potential clients slash patients to seek out a treatment that might not be proven. And also sometimes how we base science on assumptions that might not be accurate. So where do we get this from? So in the 1920s, this eminent, he wasn't a huckster. He wasn't a quack doctor. He was a preeminent neuroscientist who studied a lot about hormones and the psyche. He did a study on two rats and gave them vasectomies to see how it affected their moods and behavior because of two assumptions. One was right, one was wrong. One thing he thought correctly was that cells near the sperm duct secrete some kind of male hormone. Today, we do not like to think of testosterone as the male hormone. Women have it too. It wasn't even named yet, but he thought there was something potent being secreted near the sperm ducts. He was right. People didn't really believe that. Here's what he was wrong about. He thought when you blocked cells in an area of the body, the cells around it would proliferate like weeds. Like if you plucked a flower out of a garden, weeds would come in and proliferate. So he thought, oh, if I do something to block something near these producing cells, we'll just have more of them. One, he was wrong on that. And two, this is just based on his idea of what a male hormone juice would be. His assumption, right? Huge assumption. (laughs) So he did this wonderful study. And I don't think you have to be a statistician to realize that two male rats is not a large sample size. He gave them vasectomies. I don't know how he judged their libido, but he claimed to think that these two little vasectomized rats just seemed healthier than ever. So he had his friend operate on a 43-year-old man who, 1918, he claimed he was tired and lost his libido. And right after the surgery, he never felt better. So from there, word got out. And Mm. this doctor who created this idea of vasectomies, his last name was Steinach. His name was Eugene Steinach. It was called Steinacking. You didn't say I'm having a vasectomy to boost my libido. You said, I want to be Steinacked. Freud was Steinacked. The famous poet Yeats was Steinacked. This was going on in Europe, but American men heard about it and they were lining up, begging for best. Steinack me, baby. Wow. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Hashtag Steinack me. (laughs) If you wanted to stay fertile, you could just do one side. I mean, to me, it's fascinating because it proves one, the power of placebo. Two, what men will do if someone says, I have something that's going to boost your libido and make you feel better. And three, how sometimes things take off. There were doctors at the time in the 1920s saying there's no science, but that's really hard to push back against Mm. men lining up and saying, my libido is great. Yeah, this is, first of all, blowing my mind. So what are people most surprised about in something like, oh, I didn't know that was controlled by hormones? 
I think to me, one of the big issues in hormones, a few things that I think gets misunderstood, and it's kind of hard to wipe out of our brain imaging of this, is we tend to think of hormones in silos. Like if you think of horses on a racetrack, there's the growth hormone track for growing, and there's the estrogen one, which we mistakenly always think makes you the female thing, and men have estrogen, the testosterone one. And we think of them all in their own separate tracks. But honestly, you should think cobweb in your head, not like racetracks. They all interact with each other. And now we're learning that they interact with our immune system. So how you fiddle with your hormones is going to fiddle with your immune system and vice versa, how your immune system is going to affect your hormones. And then the other really shocking thing that has come out recently is all this talk of the microbiome. We all hear about our gut bacteria and and all these you know teeny little microbes that are living within us. There's more of them than there are of us. They interact with our hormone system and they may be secreting hormones. So all of that complicates the picture. The other thing, which isn't new, but I think is just fascinating, we discovered in the 1990s that our fat cells secrete hormones. And what does that mean? That means that hormones aren't just metabolism and growth and sex drive. They're your yearnings and desires. And I don't mean like just sexual desires, but hunger, appetite. So it's so much more complex and it's so much more fascinating. And it kind of does make us realize like we are our chemistry. There's all this thing of like control your hormones, control your chemistry, but if we are our chemistry, like where's that circuit? It's more circular than just getting on top of things and controlling them. Yeah, I was actually going to throw in there like this great philosopher, Ludacris and Nate Dog. They once <laughs> said, control your hormones and keep your drawers on. And I was like, does that suggest that we actually can control our hormones or are we controlled by them? And you mentioned that circular dynamic. Where does our influence exist in that circle? Oh, I think that enters into some weird philosophical thing. I mean, in some ways it's philosophical, in some ways it's easy. So the philosophical side is like, is our influence though, what we're trying to do, is that our hormones telling us to do that? So, you know, where does that start? On the other hand, there are people that have documented low levels of certain hormones, either from a tumor or disease or for whatever reason. And we now can, thanks to endocrinology advances, we now have ways to help people that have low hormones. You know, for instance, a pituitary gland, the pituitary sends out so many signals. A hundred years ago, if you had a defective or non-working pituitary, it wouldn't kill you, but you would never mature. You'd never go through puberty. You'd never grow. Nowadays, and I met someone who was born with a non-functioning pituitary. He was like this brainiac dynamic kid and his doctors were able to diagnose it early on and give him the growth hormone he needs, the testosterone he needs, you know, not pumping him up to be a superman, though he did seem super special when I met him, Um, (laughs) but just making sure like he went through puberty, he grew. There's actually some amazing advances where we can keep people feeling healthy. I mean, we take insulin for granted that we have that. That's a hormone that's keeping diabetics alive. Yeah, since we are doing mental health, that is the name of the game for this season three. How do you think our understanding of hormones has changed how we understand mental health today? 
I think what we need to understand is that we're not going to say this chemical is a little low and I'm going to give it to you. And this is why you're feeling depressed because of this hormone. I even think we still tend to think, oh, women are hormonal before their periods because their estrogen is this or progesterone is that. I think it's oversimplified. Women going through fertility are put on massive doses of these hormones. Yeah, that can really trigger depression and make them feel differently. So we know there's receptors in the brain for estrogen, progesterone, all these hormones. But that's very different from going to someone and having them measure your hormones from those levels, that snapshot. They can't say like, oh, you're depressed because of this and we're going to treat it that way. One of the things that we're also finding is it may not be your exact level. So you don't want to get like a Fitbit of hormones to compare your levels to your friends. It may be the swings. So you may have a certain level of estrogen in you and then at menopause when it slams down and plummets, it's that change. It's that plummet that makes you feel different, not the actual level of it. You've researched the history of hormones, so what does the future look like? I think that the neuroendocrinologists that I speak to, and these people are so smart, and I've actually recently talked to neurogastroenterologists, I think that there's a lot of scientists out there that are breaking out of their traditional silos and really looking at this mind-body interplay in ways we hadn't before. It used to be, let's learn as much as we can about this hormone. And now, and it was also so binary about what women were like and what men were like. And I think now we're really trying to understand how our hormones, how the nerves in our gut, the nervous system, how our immune system, how they all interact with each other. Dr. Epstein, Randy, thank you so much for being here. Seriously, we really appreciate all of this. This was very informative. Awesome conversation. Yeah, it was so awesome to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Randy Hutter Epstein for coming on to the show and speaking with us. Yeah, who knew the history of something like hormones would be that wild? Hey, Bay. What's up? Do you ever wonder whether this planet is even going to exist in 30 years? Mm, I do. Mm-hmm. It can be overwhelming to think about how to deal with some of the biggest problems we're facing. Our friends over at the Franklin Institute talked to some of the sharpest minds working in science and technology, though. And I got to say, I think 2050 is going to be pretty cool. Wow. So check out The Road to 2050, a new docuseries from the Franklin Institute at fi.edu. Nice. We've looked at the history of hormones, but now let's look at the future of genetics. Bay, what do you know about genetics? Well, there is this a historical group uh-huh. called the X-Men. And mm-hmm. somewhere in there, they talk about genes and mutation. And that might be the limit of what I know about genes. I was going to say the only thing I know about genes is I remember when I was in high school, I had this friend. He was a photographer, Peter Parker, um, and he got bit (laughs) by the spider. There you go. And it was the craziest thing. All his genes got rewritten and he was shooting webs. And he's just walking on walls. So uh, in any case, hopefully our next conversation will bring it down to earth. Yeah. And if we get the courage to ask that to a professional, then we will. But I'm going to try to seem professional. I won't ask about Spider-Man unless it comes up organically. Let's welcome Dr. Michael Gandow to So Curious. Can you introduce yourself and what you do? Sure. Well, thank you for inviting me to come talk with you guys. I'm Michael Gandel. I'm the Hetznecker Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. 
and I run a developmental brain genetics and genomics research lab at Penn and at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Nice. Just so we could have an idea going forward and for the audience, can you explain what genes actually are? What's the working definition? (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. So we all have inside of every cell in our body 23 chromosomes that are comprised of 3 billion base pairs of DNA. That's A's, T's, G's, and C's that we all inherit from our mom and our dad. And every single cell inside the nucleus has two copies of each of these. And these are the instruction manual for what makes us a person, what makes us tick, and what makes our bodies and cells do what they do and how we develop. As it relates to your research, how would you define mental health? So I'm trained as a psychiatrist. I went to medical school and did clinical training in adult psychiatry. And so I I treat patients who have various mental health conditions. And mental health are sort of constellations of symptoms that people experience that kind of go together that can cause some impairment in how somebody might be able to think or feel or function in the real world. And You know, the symptoms kind of go together in certain patterns and we give them names, things like depression, anxiety, or autism spectrum disorder, which is what we're studying for the most part. And they are sort of characterized by these groups of symptoms. But it actually is a really hard thing to define because the symptoms are kind of subjective and Mm -hmm. it's not like you can go to the doctor and get a blood test or you can go to... Uh, get a brain scan and it mm-hmm. says you have, you know, this is a, this exact thing. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, and yeah. so that, that's what makes, I think, it particularly hard to study some of these disorders and mental health conditions that we do. What conditions does your work focus on? So my lab and my research mostly focuses on the neurodevelopmental side. So that means brain development. So different conditions that occur within the first, say, two or three decades of life. So I mentioned autism being one of them, which is something that happens very early in life. But we also study things like schizophrenia, which is another mental health condition, which doesn't really begin to show symptoms often until 18 to Mm -hmm. 20 to 30. But we now appreciate that it has a lot of roots in early brain development, whether it's during fetal brain development or early childhood. Okay. Wow. And so you direct a developmental, let's see if I can get this right, a <laughs> developmental neurogenomics research laboratory, the Gandal Lab. Is that correct? That is correct. And so can you tell us about it? What does your research look like? What's your day to day? Yeah. So we are really interested in understanding how these different disorders come about and really trying to translate symptoms into biology and understand the basic biology of neuropsychiatric disorders. And the way that we do this is to leverage genetics as kind of a foothold. So as I mentioned before, it's often very hard to define or to really systematically understand what these disorders are that are characterized by various symptoms to how people are thinking or feeling or behaving. It's very hard to quantify it. But one thing that we do know and we've known now for several decades, is that if one person in a family has some kind of pattern of symptoms related to mental health, other people in the family likely have something similar. Mm. This tells us that these conditions are heritable, which means that there are certain genetic factors that are shared between members of the same family that are likely contributing to these different symptoms. And so my lab, that's sort of the guiding foothold that we try to use to understand biology. 
And what do we do um, on a day-to-day -day basis is that we rely a lot on two things. One is human brain samples. We actually are very fortunate to be able to get access to hundreds to thousands of post-mortem human brain tissue. Yeah, I was wow. going to say, how do you get that? How do you, yeah. where, where do you find that at? Wow. That's not lying around. Well, yeah. hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's not, which is one thing that makes it very tricky to study brain disorders is that you can't just go in and take a biopsy. You can't just mm -hmm. take a piece of somebody's brain. And so we have to rely on brain banks and post-mortem brain tissue and basically relying on individuals in the community who recognize the importance of this type of work and are, are willing to say, if my loved one passes away for some reason and they had a certain condition that they'll donate it to different brain banks and, and organizations like the Autism Tissue Program um, or the Autism Brain Net, which is actually where we get a lot of our, our brain tissue samples from. And that really helps us to understand and develop better insights and biological understanding for things like autism is extremely important for the work that we do. Do you see in the future, because like you said, you can't just do a blood test and find out if somebody is going to be predispositioned, right, to have a condition. But do you think that there will be, a, like I'm thinking about, so I have cystic fibrosis, genetic disease, and it was a nightmare getting diagnosed because especially in the mid-90s when I was born. So it took forever because there's so many possible mutations. Do you think that there is going to be or hopefully the ability to actually like take blood one day and be able to spot those disorders? Yes and no is the simple answer. Yeah. <laughs> so simple. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> we are definitely gaining a much greater appreciation for the genetic causes of various uh, mental health conditions like autism. And at the very extreme end of the distribution, you do have these forms of autism where if somebody has a genetic variant, they're very likely to have the disorder. And, that, and that's something that you could potentially test for somewhat along the lines of what we do now in prenatal screening, for example, for some other developmental conditions. But those are, are tend to be very rare. The vast majority, I think, of the genetic risk or genetic load is not nearly as deterministic. It's, you know, again, kind of a bunch of shades of gray. And so I don't think we'll ever necessarily be able to say yes or no, but I think we'll be able to think of it more along the lines of they're predicting risk, like the genetics will say you're at a twofold increased risk or a fourfold increased risk based mm. on this pattern okay. compared to general population. Now, you talked about this already, but can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between genes and mental health? How does genes impact mental health and vice versa? How does mental health impact genetics? Yeah, that's a really interesting and loaded question. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so the way that we know that genes impact mental health, it kind of goes back to this idea that if a person in a family has symptoms of a mental health condition, more people in the extended family likely have similar symptoms. And we can actually take measurements of how related everyone is in a family or in a large population and how similar the symptoms say of schizophrenia or autism or, mm -hmm. or depression or whatever. And then we can actually use that to calculate a number that tells you sort of how genetic or how heritable this condition is between zero and one. How much does genes impact these symptoms? And so for autism and, and schizophrenia, the two main disorders that I study, um, it's somewhere between 70 and 80% in the population is being driven by genetics. Now, we don't know what the individual genes are yet, but we know sort of in aggregate, you take all of the genetic material or all the genetics together, and it contributes about 70 to 80% in the population. Wow. I want to ask this, well, what ideas around genetics and mental health do you wish 
were more widely understood by the general public? Two things. I think that we need to understand that a lot of these disorders do have roots in genetics. And I think that in some cases that can actually be very liberating to people to kind of, for example, know that it's not necessarily their fault if mm -hmm. somebody in their family or a kid begins to struggle with some of these issues because it's not something they necessarily did. It's just something that these genetic factors that we all have within ourselves. And it sort of helps take some of the pressure off, I think, a little bit, or that the parents especially put on themselves. I really appreciate that. No, I just want to kind of like focus on that for a second because I think carrying around guilt and shame really makes it difficult to tackle some of these things. And that's not just like somebody saying that emotionally. You're talking about scientifically. It's just not your fault. It's just not necessarily something yeah. that you did. Exactly. And I'll give you a very concrete example of this that I think also hits close to home. So there was a study many years ago that looked at pregnant women who were taking certain medications during pregnancy and what the outcomes were in the kids that were born from those pregnant moms. There's been many flavors of these types of studies that have been done along the years, but the two medicines that have been looked at, um, one was the SSRI medication, which is a commonly used medicine that we prescribe for things like anxiety and depression. And then the other one was Tylenol, acetaminophen, which is a commonly used pain medicine. And both of those are thought to be pretty safe to use actually during pregnancy, although you should always consult with your own doctor about individual medication decisions. But what the initial studies found was that there were elevated rates of things like autism and ADHD in the kids when moms uh, took those medicines. What those studies, though, failed to account for was the fact that there's genetic reasons that moms may be taking medicines for these conditions. So maybe mom has a little bit more of a, a genetic predisposition for anxiety or depression or something like that, and then is on the medicine. And then we'll pass those genes on to their kid, and then maybe the kid will have some symptoms. And so it's actually nothing to do with the medicine causing some exposure, but it's really just tracking the genetics. And when you control for the genetics, almost all of these associations really get uh, substantially reduced. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of moms out there who maybe took some Tylenol during pregnancy and then had a kid uh, who wow. had, had struggles yeah. um, and then blame themselves for that right, decision right. Yeah. because these studies come out. And really what the genetics I think is showing is that these things matter a lot less than we think they do. Interesting. And so my last question for you then, Michael, is what does the future of your research look like? We are, I think, at a very exciting time right now in genetics in general and brain genetics where every day there's a new bigger study of trying to identify these genetic risk factors for these disorders coming together, very large you know, biobanks, they call them, or, or really huge studies. And I think it's very exciting because we're starting to get a foothold on, on what these genetic factors are. And I'm really excited now to take it to the next level or the next stage, which is to then build an understanding of what these variants and genes are doing all together and be able to start making predictions about treatments or therapies or, or things that we can do to help people in a more specific way based on what their genetics are. And in some very rare cases, this may be something like gene therapy almost um, type of approaches, where if there's a really rare a mutation that somebody might have that we know is sort of fully associated with the disorder that, that one could potentially go in and actually try to edit that out or, or correct mm -hmm. that specific change. 
or probably on the more you know common side, which is just really predicting which medicines somebody might respond to or even predicting new medicines based on genetics that might work. And I'm really excited about that era, what we call this precision medicine. Um, and I think we're getting very close to being able to do this now and really begin to translate all this knowledge that we have, but actually make a difference in people's lives. Awesome. Yeah. Hell yeah. Thank you so much to both Dr. Gandal and Dr. Hutter Epstein for coming on the show. We really did learn so, 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 so much. And make sure you tune in next week to learn even more. This time, all about how medications are used to treat mental health conditions and what medications might look like for the future. What is it about this person that says this is the right drug or this is the wrong drug? All that and more on the next episode of So Curious. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson and Emily Cherish of Radio Kismet. This podcast is also produced by Joy Matafusco, Jatri Das, and Aaron Armstrong of the Franklin Institute. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our assistant producer is Seneca White. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger, and our audio editor is Lauren DeLuca. Our graphic designer is Emma Seeger. And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. Oh yeah, and I'm the Bull Bay. See you next week. <laughs>